Welcome back to Primer, the podcast about all things Amazon. I'm your host, Alex Press, and this week we're doing things a little bit differently. My producer, Sarah Hurd, just visited Seattle and met with organizers there about the next campaign to support and protect Socialist City Council member Shama Sawant, this time from a recall campaign with a shaky legal basis and a lot of right-wing money behind it. So before we get to that conversation, the usual housekeeping. I keep all the episodes of Primer free, but to keep the project afloat, I have a Patreon. It's patreon.com forward slash Primer Podcast. If you sign up, the episodes are all up there, but you'll also get show notes, which are brief annotated bibliographies of some key sources I use for the week's episode, as well as video of some of our interviews. Of course, you'll also get my gratitude. To the 74 people who have subscribed, thank you. Again, that's patreon.com forward slash Primer Podcast. Now to Sarah's interview. Shama Sawant was first elected to the Seattle City Council in 2013. She was re-elected in 2015 and 2019. Sawant has made fighting Amazon a cornerstone of her campaign and her tenure on the council. She's seen wins in bringing a $15 minimum wage to Seattle, as well as a new tax on Amazon and other big businesses, with the proceeds going to COVID and housing support. This work and her unapologetic anti-establishment rhetoric have made her the target of both big business and the right wing, and this has culminated in a recall Shama Sawant campaign. Sawant's supporters are responding to this campaign head-on, challenging the organizers of the recall campaign to, quote, put up or shut up, and even collecting signatures to ensure that the recall campaign occurs alongside the city council and mayoral race this November, rather than a different, lower turnout date. Sarah spoke to campaign manager Emily MacArthur and field organizer Elon Axelbank about this current battle and the larger fight for the future of Seattle. Without further ado, here's the conversation. Great. Well, thank you guys so much for joining me. Let's just go around real quick and introduce ourselves. Hi, uh, my name is Emily MacArthur. Uh, I'm the campaign manager for the Shama Solidarity Campaign. I'm also a dual member of Democratic Socialists of America and Socialist Alternative, and I'm on the National Committee for Socialist Alternative. Uh, my name is Ilan Axelbank. I'm field organizer for the Shama Solidarity Campaign, also a dual member of uh, DSA and Socialist Alternative, and on Socialist Alternative's National Executive Committee. Let's rewind a little bit back to 2013. Were you involved in political organizing? Did Was that something that got you kind of interested in electoral politics in a way that you hadn't before? So, yeah, um, after the Occupy movement, Socialist Alternative had a discussion on a national level where we just felt that there was a real opening. Um, we put out a call for 200 Occupy candidates. Um, and, you know, as sort of part of taking up that mantle, you know, not just saying other people should run 200 Occupy candidates, we decided to run three candidates across the country where we had substantial branches. So one in Boston, one in Minneapolis, and one in Seattle. Alan and I both actually uh, uh, volunteered for the Seamus Whalen campaign in Boston, um, which I believe got about 3,000 votes. So it was pretty admirable at the time when there were not really any elected socialists across the country. Um, but it was became clear in the months leading up to Shama's election that that wasn't just a propaganda campaign, but that there was a real opening and that we could really win this thing. And uh, yeah, I think really shocked the nation. Uh, you can read a lot of the the news coverage that came out at the time and it's very much uh like marxist elected in the belly of the beast um you know in the united states we got solidarity letters from chile from spain like all across the world people who were shocked to see this happen in the united states so then to fast forward a little bit it was the 2019 then re-election campaign where the focus kind of shifted towards 
taking on Amazon. Uh, What was it that made it clear that that needed to be the fight to have? Yeah, so there was a national conversation developing um, around Amazon basically shopping around their HQ2, um, and that turned into a massive fight, right, where um, things that had been previously totally accepted that, of course, the state's going to give them these huge tax breaks, um, but they just really took it to such an arrogant next level where they were shopping around for who would give the biggest tax break, um, and it really provoked a response, right, um, where, um, you know, we saw the rebellion in Queens where working class people said, actually, no, we're not going to give you this massive uh, handout. So that was a national conversation that was developing. But of course, in Seattle, we have Amazon's headquarters. They actually came to Seattle because it has the lowest corporate tax rate in the country. Like They're pretty open about that. Um, And they just had increasingly been developing power in Seattle. And so it was clear, you know, as Jeff Bezos was becoming the richest man in the world and kind of arrogantly throwing that around and the power of uh, Amazon was continuing to grow, um, that nationally that was a question that was posed, but concretely here in Seattle where housing prices had skyrocketed, um, where it was clear that big business really wanted to not just like be in charge, but literally buy City Hall, um, that we really needed to tap into that consciousness of who runs this city, working class people or Jeff Bezos. Um, And I think at the beginning of it all, People were a little skeptical. Isn't that like a bit hyperbolic? Um, but that those perspectives really came to fruition. Um, we saw that um, by the fall, Amazon had broken all previous records of corporate money in an election. They dropped $1.5 million in a corporate pack to get rid of Shama, to spend it on TV ads, on mailers with Shama's face on them um, about how the socialists needed to go. Um, and it became super clear to the people in district three to the people people in seattle that you know amazon wasn't just going to be a friendly neighbor they wanted their way or the highway and they were willing to pay you know a prince's ransom to get it yeah i think um you know i don't have much to add about the 2019 race but i think um you know what shama's elections in 2013 again in 2015 and again in 2019 showed uh they showed you know a number of things but first in 2013 you know this was pre-bernie um, and so, you know, she was at that time, uh, I believe, the only openly socialist, open socialist elected official in the country. Uh, but not just that, but also she didn't run as a Democrat. And that's something that really drew me to Shama at first um, was, you know, I was it was 2013. I was kind of pissed off at Obama. You know, he ran on hope and change in 2008. Didn't see a whole lot of either of those things in his first term. Then he ran on the same things, you know, in 2012. And then so the kind of offering that political alternative and in 2013, you know, a lot of the media was like, oh, OK, you know, yeah, the socialist won. You know, we'll, we'll see what happens in a couple of years. But then she won. In t- first of all, then we, uh, you know, Shama and S.A. helped lead the movement uh, to win the first $15 an hour minimum wage in a major city in the country. Got reelected in 2015, which I think showed that it wasn't just a flash in the pan. Of course, Bernie happens. The socialist movement explodes. Um, and then, yeah, in 2019, as Emily was saying, Amazon just pulled out literally all the stops um, to try and get her out. But I think, you know, to me, one of the biggest lessons from the 2019 campaign is that in the face of, uh, you know, attacks from big business, uh, the strategy cannot be to water down what you're saying in order to appease them and to appease the political establishment. And unfortunately, that is, I think, what a lot of, you know, um, 
Certainly Democratic politicians do. Uh, and even some of the more progressive or liberal Democrats will take the approach of trying to appease big business, appease the ruling class. Uh, but I think for me, the theme of that campaign was that the best defense is a good offense. And so to go on the attack, to say we're going to tax Amazon even more. You know, we think Amazon and, and you know, big corporations should be taken into public ownership. Um, and all of this, and you know, and through that type of kind of uh, politically aggressive working class campaign, uh, we were able to uh, send them packing, and uh, you know, now we're here. So I, I want to get back to the best defense being a good offense in just a sec. But first, I want to kind of ask what else um, Shama was working on before 2019 that got Amazon so freaked out and and worried and what kind of movement was happening in city council at the time the thing about the amazon text is we have to kind of distill that down to a couple short talking points for a lot of people but in reality the amazon tax that we have now is the second amazon tax we passed a much smaller amazon tax in 2018 um and it was something that you know housing activists fought really viciously for um that it was clear we needed funding um, you're, there's no way around it, right? No more caseworkers or tiny houses are going to actually solve homelessness. We need more affordable housing. Um, and so that was really clear. Where is that money going to come from? Not from, you know, uh, homeowners who are already tapped out from property taxes, not from working class people who are already tapped out from astronomical sales taxes in Seattle. We have to go after big business, even though it's been treated as a golden goose by the Democratic majority on uh, um or I'm not sure if I'm using the golden goose in the correct way there. Um, the untouchable golden goose, um, you know. Um, so we won um, a substantial but significantly smaller than the 250 million Amazon tax that we uh, just won last year. Um, and then the mayor, Jenny Durkin, had backroom meetings with Amazon executives where she was trying to bargain down even further what had been won. Uh, she then convened uh, over the weekend secret meetings with the majority of the city council. Oddly, she didn't invite Shama to those meetings. Um, this all came out through public records and text messages that they broke the law, convening amongst themselves to plan to repeal the Amazon tax. So this was a huge slap in the face to the movement um, that uh, the this Amazon tax that we had fought so hard for that was so clearly needed was then uh, within two weeks repealed. Um, so the, the specter of the Amazon tax had been introduced before 2019, and we had kind of named like they are the big player. Um, because you often, when you talk about progressive funding, get into this kind of back and forth where people ask, who's going to pay for it? And even if you say, we'll tax big business, there's this question of, well, what qualifies as a big business? But when you say Amazon tax, there's no question, right? What is the biggest business in Seattle or across the country? What is the behemoth that's making billions for Jeff Bezos? It's Amazon. And so it really simplified that conversation for us. Um, and they didn't like that they became a household name for the big business that should be taxed. So that really put them on notice going into 2019. So I have another question. How do you feel like regular working folks in Seattle feel about Amazon? Because something that I've run into when I've talked to people um, about the podcast that I'm doing is that they have a lot of questions about how they can use Amazon more responsibly, but I think there's a, a reluctance to view Amazon as kind of uh, like evil or, or, or actually 
um, bad. And I think that that's because they've been very savvy in their um, like public relations. Is that something that you've run into at all um, during your campaigning? I mean, certainly there's, you know, there's mixed views on on Amazon as a corporation. Um, the Amazon tax was, I would say, fairly widely supported. Um, and that's how we were able to build uh, a movement in order to win it. And kind of the story that Emily's talking about, about the Amazon tax movement in 2018, is we built a movement, it won, uh, but then the, you know, the Democrats were able to repeal it. And so then we came back, we won re-election in 2019, and, you know, uh, linking up with Black Lives Matter and that could maybe be a story that you know that we say in a second, but we were able to build an even bigger movement and win it, and they weren't able to repeal it because of the size of the movement um, and the power of the movement then. But I think you know, oftentimes I, I would say you know you run into people like, oh yeah, you know, I support you know the Amazon tax, but I must confess I do use Amazon Prime, uh, you know, and I also use Amazon Prime. Uh, it's extremely convenient. Uh, it's uh, quite nice to order something online, and it appears at your doorstep. Two days later, thanks to, uh, you know, Amazon workers who work their asses off uh, day in and day out. Uh, thanks nothing to Jeff Bezos uh, that, that that's how that works. Um, but uh, but I think for us, you know, as socialists, uh, the way that Amazon will be defeated is not by, you know, Joe Schmo on the street, you know, deciding, uh, you know, nobly, uh, but deciding to, you know, that they're not going to uh, partake in that, that they're not going to uh, buy from Amazon, but that ordinary working people getting together, organizing collectively against Amazon, uh, and uh, specifically uh, Amazon workers using their power as the people who make Jeff Bezos, you know, uh, you know, make his wallet fat. And, you know, we see this even just the other day when he did this unbelievably obnoxious trip into space uh, where then, he, you know, he comes back and he's like, I just want to thank all the workers and employees of Amazon for making this possible. And it's just like, yeah, that is why this ridiculous thing you just did is possible. Um, and so workers, uh, you know, and customers can use our power collectively to organize, but through, I think, individual boycotts or stuff like that. Um, it's it's not the way that it's going to happen. And I think what's cool about the Amazon tax is it showed in practice that there that the Amazon can be defeated and it's through organizing collectively. Um, and so I think having that to show people actually can give people more hope, you know, because they see, oh, OK, I actually can shop at Amazon. I can take advantage of that, but I can also get involved in this movement to strike a blow. And just the last thing I would say is like, you know, as socialists, for us, I think we need to be clear that uh, we don't, you know, there's there's big business, right? There's Walmart, there's, you know, Amazon, whatever. There's big business. We don't have a problem with the big part of it. We have a problem with the business part of it. It's awesome that I think that you can walk into a store like Walmart and everything you could possibly want uh, is, you know, is in front of you. The problem is that under capitalism, uh, when everything is determined by profit, uh, first of all, the quality of the goods you find in Walmart are going to be low, right? Because they're trying to make as much money as possible. Second, workers are seeing none of the profits. You know, uh, they're getting worked in terrible working conditions, etc. Um, and so similarly with Amazon, it's great that we have a service like that. The problem is it's run on the basis of profit. It should be publicly owned uh, and run by workers. Yeah. To s switch back to kind of the, the political side of things, um, Shama is in District 3. Can you tell me a little bit about District 3 and the, the makeup of that. And then I also want to kind of get back at what you were saying about, you know, there's a temptation of politicians to water things down and compromise. Seattle, I imagine, you know, as a like liberal city, there's probably a lot of other people on the city council who ran 
with very similar looking platforms, um, but have maybe not. You're shaking your head. Go ahead. I'll just stop talking. <laughs> um, well, I don't think there is a single other politician who put their name and then 15 now on their yard sign or, um, you know, uh, tax Amazon on their T-shirts or, you know, as a lawn shirt has on it, rent control. Um, you know, they might say in a in a candidate forum, oh, who supports rent control? And then, you know, they might hold up a sign that says, Oh, yes, I I support that. But there's a huge difference between kind of saying sheepishly, I would support such a thing and leading from the front and using your campaign like Shaman did in 2013 and 2019 to actually win concrete gains for working class people like that. 15 now was law within six months of Shama getting into office. I've never seen anything like that in my life. Um, and also similarly with the Amazon tax that we won, uh, in 2020, like the turnaround on that from the reelection and that we like leveraged that outrage at Amazon into this is the moment to win the Amazon tax bigger and better than before. Um, you know, that's what it means to actually like use your office as a basis for class struggle. Um, uh, and I'm forgetting what your actual question in the beginning was. District three. Yeah. Um, so district three is kind of one of the densest parts of, of the city. Overwhelmingly, uh, is where renters and apartment buildings, uh, are located. You know, Seattle's kind of got a bit of a, um, urban sprawl with lots of, uh, you know, single family neighborhoods. Um, but lots of apartment buildings. Um, it's also kind of the historic center of, um, like, the LGBTQ uh, neighborhoods in Seattle. Um, And so I think a lot of those things add up um, and also just kind of like where young people who move to the city, like that's where you want to live, right? It's like the heart of the city. Um, And yeah, as a socialist, we orient towards working class and young people. Uh, It also covers, you know, what was a red line district, uh, the central district. um, So historically black neighborhood. So it kind of is like a perfect storm of like progressive forces um, that are how, you know, we've been able to systematically go door to door and convince uh, all of those constituencies of socialist working class politics. Okay, so now we're up to today. We've gotten Shama into office and there is a movement to get her recalled. Some of what this recall campaign is pointing to is some of the stuff that happened last summer. Um, Can you guys tell me a little bit about kind of how the Black Lives Matter movement um, intersected with the Shama campaign um, and how they're now kind of trying to use some of that as a cudgel uh, against her this year. For sure, yeah. So um, <clears throat> Black Lives Matter, you know, after the uh, killing of George Floyd on May 25th last year, obviously exploded into the biggest protest movement this country has ever seen. You had 15 to 26, I think, uh, is the estimate million people out in the streets. And in Seattle, there was a huge movement. Of course, you know, CHOP or Chaz was kind of, you know, the most well-known thing. But uh, even in addition to that, there was just, you know, daily protests for weeks on end. Um, and Shama, as a, you know, socialist elected official, played a, really a key role in a lot of those protests. Um, and uh, that was when the Tax Amazon movement kind of really... You know, it was it had already been going on when Black Lives Matter started, and it just shot up into the sky uh, because we were able to link, you know, uh, the demands to tax Amazon to fund affordable housing with gentrification, with police brutality, with the lack of affordable housing, which of course disproportionately affects, uh, you know, people of color and Black people. 
in particular, and what Emily was talking about, about the black population in the Central District, which is part of Shama's district, just being pushed out over decades uh, because of rising rents and, and all of these issues. Um, and so the two you know movements kind of fused together and created something very powerful. Uh, and so... Uh, two out of the three charges against Shama uh, as part of the recall campaign are related to her role uh, in the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, and we actually wear these uh, charges with the badge of honor uh, in reality. Um, one of them, uh, they say that Shama uh, led a march to Mayor uh, Durkin's house uh, during Black Lives Matter. Um, and this is actually uh, not true. Uh, in part, it's true in another part. It's not true because uh, she didn't lead that march. Uh, it was actually a group uh, of families of victims of police brutality uh, at the hands of the Seattle Police Department. And we should note that uh, the Seattle Police Department actually had the single biggest delegation to the January 6th insurrection out of any police department in the country. Um, and uh, the, fa- the families of police uh, uh, victims of police brutality contacted Shama and said, "Hey, will you please speak at this rally that we're leading?" And she said, "Of course, I will do that." So she was there, of course, uh, but she didn't actually lead it. Uh, and and you know, I think she would go to that rally again if she was asked again. Second thing uh, was that uh, she uh, uh, led basically a, a protest inside City Hall, actually. Um, to, uh, you know, and there was, there was kind of an occupation, there was a, you know, a, a democratic meeting organized, kind of an, a general assembly type thing um, to discuss strategy for the movement. Um, and they said, you know, oh, this promotes lawlessness and whatever, which is, of course, coded racist attacks against Black Lives Matter. It's about, it fits in with the, you know, uh, the, the, the wave of attacks on peaceful protest we're seeing across the country right now. There's 81 bills in state legislatures across the country to criminalize peaceful protest. Um, and this is, you know, the recall campaign campaign is absolutely a part of that. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so, uh, but actually this protest in City Hall was what the, the key event that led to Seattle becoming the first city in the country to pass, uh, at, at which Shama introduced the bill for this, to pass a ban on, uh, on tear gas, chemical weapons, rubber bullets, and crowd control measures by the police, which unfortunately later was watered down uh, by the Democratic establishment. Um, but uh, so the protest worked, right? Um, and so they're coming after her for these things. But for us, it gets at the question of how does change happen, right? Can, does change happen, whether it's Black Lives Matter, affordable housing, you know, workers' rights, whatever, uh, through kind of, you know, uh, asking, begging, and pleading? Does change start in the halls of power? No, change starts on the streets. It starts in the workplaces when we get organized together and we demand it. And something, you know, when we're out door knocking and tabling that, you know, when people have questions about this sort of stuff that, I, that I'd like to bring up is talking about Rosa Parks, you know, um, when she uh, refused to sit on the back of the bus. That was against the law. And actually, to be clear, what Shama did was not against the law, despite what they say. It was fully legal. Um, But what Rosa Parks did, you know, was against the law. Thank God she did that. And she broke the law because that kicked off, you know, the Montgomery bus boycott, uh, which then led to the desegregation of public transportation. Uh, There were bus boycotts across the country. And that's how that aspect of, you know, segregation was was, uh, defeated. So, uh, yeah, I think, you know, the... uh, yeah, anyway, that's that's how that's the origin of those two charges. So since this is about Amazon in a certain way, right, I, I was realizing, you know, Alon told this powerful story, which is correct, about how two out of the three charges stem from Shama's activity in the Black Lives Matter movement. But the third charge actually stems from Shama's support of the Amazon tax. Um, and I think it's worth digging into that. Um, 
So uh, the accusation as written is uh, Shema used public resources uh, to advocate for a ballot initiative, um, and that's against the rules. What actually happened? So um, coming out of uh, the 2019 election, where it was really stark, right, uh, how clearly uh, Amazon wanted to control politics in Seattle, we started organizing what we called action conferences, um, you know, uh, as part of actually uh, Shema's um, inauguration. Uh, we launched the Amazon tax uh, movement. Um, we had Sarah Nelson come speak. We had a lot of uh, working family party, um, different union leaders come and speak about why we urgently needed an Amazon tax. So again, using electoral politics to then build the movement. Coming out of that, we organized a series of action conferences. What the heck is an action conference? It's you fly or you leaflet, you rent a space and you say, we're going to come together and talk about what as a movement are we fighting for and what is our strategy to win it um those were some of the most amazing spaces i've ever been in as an organizer where hundreds of people would come out and we would talk about you know who are our allies we got to start talking to our neighbors and our coworkers and get them on board what are some of the you know talking points that big business is going to use against us and how can we confidently argue against them um how much can we fight for can we fight for a billion dollars um and we kind of settled on like 250 million is like, it's not quite enough, but it's big, it's substantial, it will feel real. What do we want that money to fund? Clearly affordable housing, but then, you know, for clear reasons, there was also um, a, a, a section of the movement who felt really strongly that it needed to go towards a Green New Deal. And people were like, yes, of course, that makes sense. So just really working out the details of why are we here? And how are we going to like win the thing that we're all together fighting for? And one of the strategies that that democratic movement came up for of like, how are we going to, you know, push the envelope and challenge uh, to win this Amazon tax was, you know, if city council won't pass it, we should run a ballot initiative. So we discussed that as a possible strategy, um, always with the eye of like, you know, city council could pass this anytime if they wanted to. Um, and uh, we start we filed a ballot initiative and began to collect signatures and that was kind of uh, some of what Alan was talking about in terms of we had those ballot initiative petitions at the Justice for George Floyd protests and it was electrifying to be able to say tax Amazon and people were like can I sign it twice and you're like oh it's a legal petition so you can only sign it once but you know that enthusiasm was really palpably there and it was just a clear connection for people um but because Shama's office bought sandwiches for one of those action conferences where we discussed, hey, as an overall strategy to win this tax on big business, one of the tools in our arsenal should be a ballot initiative. That then became a thought crime because the ballot initiative wasn't even filed until well after she'd bought those sandwiches or promoted it on her council Facebook. Um, so to even use your office as an organizing tool is what they really want to go after and criminalize, right? Um, it's not this like what is basically a very routine thing that happens where it's like oh the minutia of bourgeois law you stepped slightly an inch to the wrong of that that's not the issue right that happens all the time i talked earlier about these council members who are on the record organizing illegal meetings they didn't face recalls for that they didn't face uh fines for that but yet shama buying sandwiches for hundreds of organizers that's somehow a recallable offense so you know just when we talk about how palpably amazon's presence and like amazon's interests are being served here um yeah i think we have to talk about that third charge so emily can you tell me a little bit more about the 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 guy who's running this recall campaign um 
who is he? What's his deal? <laughs> I mean, in some ways, H. John Bridger II, who's the campaign manager, is a somewhat fascinating character. But for us, he's kind of secondary. What we actually emphasize and focus on is what are the political forces and the political content of the recall? Um, you know, I think Alon just laid out um, the ways in which the charges themselves are racist, uh, in which they attempt to criminalize protest. Um, and so, you know, any sort of sanctioning of that would be to double down on that racism and that right wing backlash. Um, and that is also further like demonstrated by who's actually funding this campaign. You know, um, Bridger's kind of a face, but uh, ultimately it's 500 Republican donors. It's 50% of the people who've maxed out to their campaign are also Republican donors. Um, there's over 130 Trump donors. Um, you know, Seattle likes to think of itself as a, a, as a liberal bastion. Um, and, you know, we want to fight for that to be true. Um, but we have to clarify, you know, who is behind this. And it is the right wing. Uh, Actually, right now, H. John Bridger II has a weekly segment on the conservative talk show uh, in Seattle, like just re reporting weekly on how it's going. Um, and so, you know, you can be one individual with kind of some ideas. And I'm not asking everyone to agree with every position I have or that every position that Shama's ever taken. Um, but it's that he's being lifted up by the political establishment, by the right wing, right? That uh, these these charges are being given credence by the courts, which, you know, we could go in. I'm sure you could have a whole episode on uh, how, you know, the courts have a history of, you know, uh, sanctioning segregation, of sanctioning driving indigenous people off their lands. Like the courts are not a, a neutral arbiter of justice. So they're being sanctioned by the courts. That's the political establishment. They're being sanctioned by the corporate media. The Seattle Times endorsed the recall campaign. The Seattle Times has be, been owned by the same corporate dynasty for over a century. Um, so, you know, they have this illusion of, you know, being credible. And so we have to constantly kind of expose what are the what's the political content, the political character of these forces rather than, you know, criminalizing um or you know even making into a cartoon this figure who himself does kind of lose his temper quite a lot um and you know not isn't the most skilled political person but that's not the key aspect of it right it's um uh, what is what is the outcome of this what will be the result if they succeed in removing the most progressive uh member of the seattle city council and i would argue the most progressive politician in america so the political landscape that we're entering into now is one in which a uh, socialist alternative is pushing for the recall to happen sooner rather than later. Can you walk me a little bit through um, what the thought process on that is? And if you could also, I've just been seeing a lot of signs for the city council races and the mayoral race. Um, are there some interesting things coming out in uh those those upcoming elections as well that might factor into all of this. Sure. So I think, you know, as Emily was kind of pointing out, what we're seeing in this recall election is really a, a coming together of the right wing, the Democratic establishment and the courts. Um, and of course, you know, Shama is a Marxist, uh, you know, Socialist Alternative is a Marxist organization. And our view of the courts, as Emily was just explaining, uh, yeah, yeah, it's not a neutral arbiter of justice, but that the state under capitalism serves to uphold the rule of the capitalist class um, at every turn. We've really seen the way that's played out um, with this recall election. So, the you know the um, 
the process that you're asking about uh, started. First of all, the recall uh, campaign announced themselves literally less than a year after Shama won re-election in 2019. So it's, you know, it's just uh, they're looking for a do-over, you know, under less democratic terrain, essentially. Um, but basically, so they, you know, they filed uh, their recall campaign. It got passed through the, the you know, the municipal court. We appealed it um, uh, to take it to the state Supreme Court. And, uh, you know, this whole process of voter suppression and trying to delay the election, put it off to a special election, kind of started when the state Supreme Court was supposed to come out uh, with an answer on the recall charges, kind of like, uh, you know, saying, yes, it could go to a recall vote or no, it couldn't, uh, deciding whether the charges were legitimate enough for that. Um, uh, uh, that start, you know, they were supposed to come out for an answer to that in early January, and they ended up taking an unprecedentedly long time. Uh, the the chart, they didn't end up coming out with their ruling until April, uh, which basically uh, gave the the recall campaign the ability to then start collecting signatures. You know, in April, May, and now what's happening is they are collecting signatures. They've intentionally slowed down their signature collection so that they are trying not to turn in their signatures by August 3rd, which is the deadline to get the, the question of the recall on the November ballot. Why do they want to do this? They want to do this because they're aiming for a special election on a random day in December, January, or February, uh, because special elections have, on average, 25% lower voter turnout, sometimes up to 50% lower voter turnout. Why do they want lower voter turnout? Because uh, lower turnout means less working class people, less poor people, less young people, less black people, all people of color, and less rent. Why do they want those people not to vote? Because those people vote for Shama, the socialist. Um, and so basically, uh, we've been you know, polarizing around this issue. We've been calling it uh, what it is, which is voter suppression. Um, we've been tying it to the wave of voter suppression that we're seeing across the country, uh, led, of course, by the Republicans, but unfortunately with uh, which the Democratic Party... Um, both certainly the establishment, you know, embodied by or led by Joe Biden, but even the progressive wing of, of the Democrats and, and even the squad, in my opinion, haven't done what's necessary to fight against that voter suppression. Um, so we're linking it uh, with that. And uh, so we've been polarizing around that. We've been calling it what it is. And so recently, about maybe a month, month and a half ago, the recall campaign changed their tune. And whereas earlier, the recall campaign manager, H. John Bridger II, uh, was on record saying he wants to avoid a November election. A few weeks ago, he said, actually, we do want a November election. And so then three weeks ago, they said, we've collected 9,000 signatures, uh, you know, but we don't know if we'll be able to collect them by August 3rd, the deadline. And if we can't collect them, then it's none other than Shama Sawant's fault because she delayed it through this process of appeals with the courts and all of this nonsense. And so we said, fine, you want a, uh, you want a November election? Fine, we'll help you collect the signatures. And so we basically called their bluff. Uh, Shama in a press conference said, put up or shut up. You know, that's our message to the recall campaign. And for the last uh, couple of weeks, uh, the Shama Solidarity campaign has taken the, uh, as far as I know, unprecedented move uh, to collect signatures for uh, Shama's own recall. I doubt that there's ever been a politician in the history of the U.S. that has signed their, a petition for their own recall. Um, and we have already collected around 2,000 signatures. Uh, we're uh, going to uh, certainly break 3,000 uh, by August 2nd, where we're, we've been handing out flyers for a put-up or shut-up rally um, uh, to build for outside of the corporate uh, bigwig lawyer's office of the recall campaign. Who is this lawyer? It's John McKay. Who's John McKay? Uh, a former U.S. attorney appointed by George W. Bush. And they say that the recall campaign is not right wing, um, which is crazy. Um, so that's basically uh, what's going on now. We say, fine, you want a November elect or you want a recall vote? We'll have a recall vote, but we're going to do it in November. 
uh, when everybody can participate. Um, and if, if they still decide to not turn in uh, the signatures, uh, then it'll be you know as plain as day for all to see uh, that this is uh, voter suppression taking place here in liberal Seattle. So that is definitely a bold campaign. Emily, you are the campaign manager. Do you have any fears that it could backfire in some way or that it'll be spun somehow by the media? Are you worried at all about voters coming into the voting booth this November? Um, Maybe some of them have been made a little bit reactionary by some of their experiences um, during the uprising of last year. Uh, Do you feel like any of that is going to come into play or are you completely confident in the people that voted for Shama last time around coming out again? As Marxists, we would absolutely fail at anything we try to do if we were for one millisecond complacent. (laughs) So we have no illusions that, you know, the snapshot of consciousness that was the 2019 election is exactly where we are now. I mean, between COVID, between the Black Lives Matter movement, the whole terrain of U.S. politics between the January 6th insurrection, the whole terrain of U.S. politics has been flipped on its head. Um, And there's correctly a mood of not going back to normal. At the same time, right, we're living through a massive amount of very understandable relief that Trump is gone. Um, it seems like maybe the uh, with the va- mass vaccination, there's like 80% vaccination rate in Seattle that, you know, we've kind of defeated uh, uh, the pandemic in some way. So just consciousness is very different than where it was in 2019. And that's why, you know, we had 50 people out canvassing today uh, on every corner in our district, right? Um, because we know um, whether it's the sanctioning of the courts or of the Uh, the bourgeois media that every single day people are systematically told like um, that Shama is abrasive or ineffective um, or all these things that just are provably false, right? What's ineffective about winning historic victories for working class people? And, you know, if abrasive is fighting for and winning things, then we need a lot more of that. Um, so definitely we are not uh, resting on our laurels of our victories. We're constantly out organizing people. Also, thousands of people have moved into our district uh, over the last, you know, uh, uh, two years. And, um, you know, we actually have a goal of registering 2000 people to vote through the course of our campaign. Uh, It's something we've always done with our campaigns is, you know, you go door knocking in these apartment buildings. There's been massive turnover because the rent is so high. Um, And so, yeah, we actively are registering people to vote, getting them involved in in politics uh, locally at the local level. Um, So, you know, not only are, yeah, we're we're also building uh, an additional base as well as kind of winning over and reconvincing the people um, that we had already won over. Um, as far as will this move backfire, I have no worries about that because we, again, are not being complacent for a second on that. You know, we we have called out from the beginning. They want this low turnout election. The only impact we are able to have is building public pressure and public awareness of what they're doing. So that's why we're having this put up or shut up rally. That's why we're out uh, every weekend on all the corners or actually basically every night right now on all the corners talking to people about it. Um, And we are fully prepared if they don't turn in their signatures, which is a very real possibility uh, to go all out in what we're calling uh, get out the vote commitments. We want to get thousands of commitments from our supporters that say, okay, 
I'm aware the election is not going to be November 2nd. We don't know when it's going to be yet, but I'm on call to send in my no vote and to call three of my friends or neighbors to send in their ballots too. So kind of always being organizing and kind of always looking to the next step um, and not kind of assuming that you're going to outsmart the ruling class, right? They, uh, this is their terrain. Elections are their terrain. Um, I think Socialist Alternative in Seattle um, has dug into kind of the bowels of like the state process in a way that a lot of socialists haven't yet been challenged to, both through like um, running about, you know, the way that we challenged for 15 now and the Amazon tax was actually through um, collecting signatures on a ballot initiative. Um, so we're quite familiar with like what are the mechanisms and the tools, um, but, you know, we don't depend on that the courts or bourgeois law will decide in our favor. We're always trying to like mobilize people and put them into the struggle because that's the only thing we can depend on at the end of the day. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit because I want to talk kind of about the the bigger picture of the future of Seattle because it feels like right now there's there's kind of this crossroads where either there can kind of be this continuing um, polarization between the people in the very high buildings making billions of dollars, meanwhile increasing homelessness, increasing people having to move away, moving farther from the city center. Are there two versions of Seattle that we can kind of move towards? And what is the the key to kind of saving Seattle from this, what it feels like to me just as a, a visitor feels like it's all, you can already kind of see how it would, it, it could play out of like it being kind of two cities. Well, the first thing I would say to that is I think the question you're asking uh, applies to much more than Seattle, but applies to uh, the United States and, in fact, the whole world. Um, and, it, and it is – you're right. We are uh, – we could go down two possible uh, directions now and, you know, different variations of each of those. But I think, you know, as Rosa Luxemburg said 100 years ago, those words are still very true today. It's socialism or barbarism. Um and the question now is we're facing all sorts of climate tipping points. Uh, Seattle, just around a month ago, uh, set uh, heat records. It was 110 degrees in Seattle, which it's never been here before. Uh, there were you know places where I think it was 125 degrees in California. There was just the flooding that killed uh, you know many people in Germany. And you know, of course, we could go on and on. Uh, but you know, between that and the uh, you know, the uh, the rich getting richer, all the billionaires making, you know, tri $2 trillion more money during the pandemic, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, homelessness, everything. Uh, you know, yeah, we are faced with an option. And I think, uh, you know, in that sense, Seattle, it's, it's not that much different from other cities, uh, both here and internationally. Um, uh, but I think one of the differences that does exist is, you know, uh, the socialist movement is, you know, it's becoming more alive and well in a lot of places, but definitely in Seattle, it's alive and well. And we have an elected representative who represents that movement, who is a real working class representative um, that now we have to fight to defend. And I think, you know, it gets to, uh, you know, the question of, you know, what we've been talking about is, you know, how do you win change and, and everything? And I think uh, I was... I'd, I'd wanted to say this earlier, but then we had moved on. But like the difference between Shama and some of the other maybe more progressive Democrats and whatever is like it, it used to be the question that like, you know, what what could tell a radical was like, do you stand? Do you agree with $15 an hour minimum wage? Do you agree with Medicare for all? Do you agree with free public college? And it was like, if you did, then you were radical. If you didn't, you know, you're not. But now a lot of people agree with, you know, that that. 
You know, climate change is a problem, that we need a Green New Deal, we need 100% renewable energy by 2030. A lot of people will say that stuff, but the question now, we're at a, a, you know, a fork in the road, and now the question has gone you know, from, well, do you uh, say you support those things, but now it's how do you win them? And I think you know, uh, the, the importance of Shama's seat is a lot of things, but one of them to me is the notion that change happens from mass movements and working class action, and that the role of a socialist elected uh, official is to use their position of authority to, f- to build mass movements and facilitate and encourage working class action and as, a, as an organizer. Um, and so I think uh, you know, that's, that's what we're defending here um, in Seattle. And of course, you know, uh, in terms of actually achieving a socialist transformation of society, certainly in socialist alternative, we don't think that you can kind of just legislate your way to socialism or elect a socialist government and they'll kind of, you know, uh, legislate from above into socialism. But we need a revolutionary movement that comes from the working class, but we can use the electoral system um, to, to start to build that. But, it, but you know, as a final thing, as, as we're seeing here in Seattle, uh, you know, you will run into limits of the usefulness of the electoral system at some point that we've won three elections very, you know, democratically fighting against. Well, it wasn't very democratic if you think about all the corporate cash flowing in, but we have fought against all odds and we've won those. And the ruling class, they're not satisfied with that. Right. And so they'll resort to undemocratic maneuvers, to voter suppression, all of that. And so we have no uh, option but to build a bigger, better and stronger movement uh, to beat them. Any final thoughts? Yeah. Uh, first of all, just thanks for this conversation. It's been really awesome. Um, and uh, but the but just the last thing I wanted to say is, you know, it's been awesome to get the opportunity to talk with Jacobin and and you know, uh, yeah, be on this podcast. And Emily and I are both members of both Socialist Alternative and DSA. And I just want to stress, um, you know, that as you know, what your question before of like we're in this fork in the road and we're facing this question of what next. And I think now is the time. Uh, for real unity in the socialist movement, uh, to fight against any kind of sectarianism, you know, uh, along, uh, yeah, any sectarianism, sectarianism within the socialist movement, and to come together around the most important issues facing our movement. I think this recall campaign uh, right now, if if it goes through, if Shama's recalled, it's going to be a precedent setter nationally. It's going to be a signal to the ruling class that when a, a socialist elected official starts being effective, oh, don't worry, we'll just recall them using an undemocratic, you know, special election maneuver. Um, and so, you know, I think, uh, you know, we're both really excited to uh, you know, I know there's a lot of DSA members that listen to Jacobin. We're really excited to be part of DSA and work together um, and have, you know, the important debates that we need to have uh, within the socialist movement. Um, and so, yeah, it's just been awesome to get this opportunity to uh, to talk. And then are there any ways that people outside of Seattle can help support Shama? Hell yeah, they can. Um, so, uh you do not have to live in District 3. You don't have to live in Seattle to donate to this campaign. We have donors in all 50 states, actually, which is really exciting. Uh, the recall campaign sent out a mailer attacking us for that. But we were that as a badge of honor that people all over the country, uh, you know, from Hawaii to Alaska, from Florida to Maine, uh, see how urgent uh, this fight is, you know, the stakes that Elon laid out. So, you know, the the recall campaign has raised over $600,000. It's actually the most expensive race happening in Seattle right now, despite the fact that there's a mayoral race and two city council races happening. Um, so 
putting your dollars behind this campaign is definitely a starting point. Um, the other thing is, you know, um, actually getting out the word, um, because the worst thing that can happen is that this happens in silence and no one kind of knows about it. Um, so, you know, following us on social media and amplifying that stuff, but, you know, having a conversation in your DSA chapter, organizing, you know, um, whether, you know, you're in a Green New Deal working group or a labor working group, you know, there are ways to connect to this campaign. We've had fundraisers from DSA chapters uh, all over the country, which I think is um, politically important. You know, it's not just raising the dollars, but it like shows that unity that Alan was talking about, uh, that we won't have the socialist movement be like subdivided into like a million different layers. We stand united against big business and the right wing. And that's, um, you know, not just an important message to send, but it's important for it to be real for us to learn how to you know have our differences and discuss them out in a civil way but to operate and move together when the moment is upon us um and you know the, the socialist movement has to learn that lesson uh or at its own peril thank you guys so much thank you thanks so much thanks so much for listening and we'll talk to you next week this has been alex press and a guest host of this episode has been my producer Sarah Hurd. Thanks as ever to Sarah, to Jacobin Magazine, and to Nate Roos for the music. Talk to you next week. Bye.